Federal employees have not been able to purchase long-term care insurance for the past couple of months. That's because the Office of Personnel Management suspended the program, pending the new plans and prices expected from the carrier. It's likely to be expensive. For what to expect, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke with the policy vice president at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. John, let's talk about the impending premium increases for federal long-term care insurance. I mean, that whole industry is a little bit dubious right now, not just in the federal market, but generally. Is it the premiums going to keep going up? Where are they now? What's been happening? And is there really a future for the whole idea? Well, that's a good question. Just to start with where the federal long-term care insurance program is, they've been operating on seven-year master contracts between OPM and the insurer, John Hancock, that will allow premiums to go up every seven years. And they have enrollees, when they enrolled in the program, were told that these were the premiums that they hope to stay stable. Now, they can go up on a class basis to ensure the solvency of the fund, but There's that kind of fine print contractual language, but it's gone up to such a degree that it's hard to think any reasonable person could have predicted such a high premium increase. And so this newest contract renewal started in May. Enrollees are going to start receiving letters indicating their premium increases this week, the week of September 11th. And then they will have 60 days to make choices of whether to accept that premium increase or to take some reduced coverage as low as just getting coverage for the amount of premiums they paid. We don't know the total amount. OPM has not released that. They have released that in the past. The last time premiums went up, they went up as high as 126% and 83% on average. So expecting another huge premium increase, which is going to be very difficult for people to accept. 83% was the average. Last time. So we don't know. This time we have no numbers on the amount. I generally think that if they're not releasing the numbers, that's a bad sign for how high it will be. And so we'll have to see and get it based on anecdotal reports from our members, kind of the range of what the premium increases are going to be. So I think you're right when you say this has happened in other long-term care plans There's not a lot of group long-term care insurance. You know, there's CalPERS. I think there was one in Minnesota. They've experienced similar high premium increases. If you purchased a private sector plan that's just long-term care insurance, those have also had premium increases. One of the things that kind of came out in a study of this program compared to the private sector alternatives, there's a couple of things that are unique that I think are bothersome, which is one, they take into account the investment returns or lack thereof of the insurer when setting these premiums, and they still have this guaranteed profit structure. Whereas in the private sector, those plans were on the hook for potential losses in a greater way, I think, than the insurer has been insulated from them here. And for them to still be having some guaranteed profit while these premiums continue to go up and up, I think it's becoming harder and harder for enrollees to accept, especially when these are guaranteed renewable contracts. So I think taking a look at that and what the justification is for these continued profits with these high premium increases is something we'd like to see. Yeah, I guess really the dynamic here is that unlike house insurance or something, a tiny percentage of houses are lost by fire or flood. And so the profile is known of, you know, what's going to happen. Insurance, probably a much higher percentage of the population is getting to the point where they need long-term care insurance. And so you have instead of a premium to payout ratio of maybe a million to one or 100,000 to one, it's maybe 10 to one. It's a little bit more of an investment and a little bit more similar to life insurance, particularly whole life insurance. Now, whole life insurance you're going to collect on, right? You know, and long-term care, I, th- I think the percentage is around 50%. So it's not quite there, 
but it is a little bit more of an investment and protection of your assets for your heirs as compared to let's plan sure. for the contingency that you may have this eventuality when it's very likely you will. So it's just turned out that, look, it's still a very valuable coverage. It's still something everybody should be planning for and have something in the works. But I think what's difficult for Feltzip and Rollies is, well, they were planning, they did put the money away, and now it's either unaffordable to continue paying these premiums or they're left with coverage that they feel is inadequate for what their needs are going to be. And so if people were overinsured already, then you know, maybe they can reduce those premiums or keep the premiums flat and keep lower coverage. But again, they're still worse off in this situation. Also, the coverage that is the benefit of these plans is also going down. They used to cover as long as you needed the care, you were insured for it. Now it's 36 months maximum or 24 months maximum. The idea is the insurance company presumes you'll say goodbye permanently instead of running up seven yeah, years of insurance. Newly offered coverage and newly offered coverage has been suspended in Feltzip, but for outside of Feltzip, you'd have that. People will have the choice of whether to take these reduced coverage. So they may have this choice to take the increased premiums, but keep the same higher coverage. So there's not a force and change of coverage for individuals here, but they may just be paying astronomical amounts and premiums for that coverage that's no longer being offered to people newly now. So people aren't going to be forced to say take less coverage, it's just they might be paying a lot more for it. So you really have to do a calculus. If you spend 20 yeah. years paying a monthly premium, which turns out to be equal to the 24-month payment you would otherwise have for long-term care, then right. you're nowhere. <laughs> right, right. And so I think if people have this coverage, and I think that's another frustrating part. They're a little bit locked in. They can't just take their money back and say invest it somewhere else or go back and invest it differently. But they may have a, a value in their coverage right now that is worth a lot. And so they'll want to keep it. So figuring out what is the best way to keep this coverage or some percentage of this coverage for them, and then pairing it with other planning for their long-term care. And, you know, it, taking a fresh look at, do I really need this total level of coverage or can I combine the long-term care insurance coverage with my annuity, with my savings to get to a point that I am secure in that end of my retirement? Well, we'll just have to see what those premiums look like when they come out, and uh, yeah. maybe OPM hasn't revealed them because they know how bad it's going to be. That's my guess, but uh, I won't put words in their mouth. <laughs> and speaking of OPM, then we are looking at all sorts of lurid possibilities for the operation of the government over the interstice between September 30th and October <laughs> 1st this year. And you got the idea maybe this could actually affect the retirement services, which OPM struggles to keep afloat as it is. Yeah, well, I think the, the outcome of the ultimate negotiation will implicate retirement services. And is there going to be a flat funding or is there going to be increase or is there actually going to be a decrease? So the House bill would have a decrease in funding for OPM back to 22 levels. The Senate bill would increase funding by 35 million. And specifically, their report language indicates that this should go to improving retirement services, improving IT modernization, uh, and making sure the rollout of the Postal Service Health Benefits Program is done correctly. And I think those all are and should be the top priorities for OPM. And so our hope is that that Senate bill language and amount of money is authorized to OPM because we're at a stage where it is way past time for them to modernize their systems, particularly for retirement services. Right. But it's not as if they haven't had budget for that in the past. 
True, true. And I think, you know, there was once where they had a contract for multi-million dollars and it totally failed to modernize the system. And so I think that had led to some backlogs because they had reduced staff in anticipation of that in the early 2010s. And then they solved that problem by just increasing staff and increasing overtime and then, you know, have had this seemingly incremental approach, but there hasn't been that much progress. And they're looking to roll out a pilot of an online retirement application by the end of this year. And if that's successful, hopefully do that government-wide. That's a really good sign for us. I don't think this should be a paper-based application system, even if you're forced to have some paper in the process because you can't digitize all these files at once. But you know, just having an application where, you know, hey, there's a missing document, there's a missing field, and that alerts the person filling out the application before it gets sent over the way kind of we do online applications today, whether it's a, a basic online form or a mortgage application, I think could help the entire process move along better. Uh, you're going to probably have less errors coming from agencies over to OPM. And so I'm hopeful that that could make some improvements. Yeah, well, if every single new federal employee starting now did everything digitally, Golly, in 40 years, it would all be online. We'd have no problem when <laughs> right, everyone right. kind of passes. I think that's the, the long-term view is, is to get all the underlying forms like the SF-50 forms in digitized and then integrated. But then that's a much harder lift. John Hatton is Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin, there's more to the interview. You can hear the whole thing at 1 p.m. today on FedLife here on Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.